You're listening to Errol Parker and Clancy Overall, editors of the Batuta Advocate on Desert Rock FM. Well, welcome back to the Batuta Advocate radio show, recording live here in downtown Batuta. Started the week with uh, International Women's Day here on the Batuta Advocate radio show. We celebrated that by interviewing a couple blokes, one who used to be on the grade cricketer. So the new podcast, Have a Go podcast on the Diamond Team Network. Didn't really time that one that well. Probably could have swapped it around and had today's guest on on Monday instead. But uh, that's the dings and the dents. Pardon the pun. Today we are joined by Georgie Dent, journalist, editor, author, facilitator, advocate for women's empowerment, gender equality and mental health. Thank you for joining us. What a week it has been in news. It certainly has been. And not actually, I would say it's been a, a big three weeks of news, mm. really. Yeah, it all seems kind of uh, tied together from... You know, everything that's been happening in Parliament House, the countless things that have happened in Parliament House and and in electoral offices around the country, and of course into this royal meltdown. It all feels like there's some uh, common theme. There is a lot of, I think, a lot of scars are being revealed, mm-hmm. I think is one way that we could put it. I think yeah. that uh, on the 15th of February, which was the day that Samantha Maiden broke the story about the allegations made by Brittany Higgins about having allegedly been raped inside Parliament House, I was actually in Canberra that day for my job with the Parenthood. We were launching a piece of research and that story was printed. And I read it and I, I, was, I was quite genuinely shocked, but I also did think this will just blow over. And then, of course, I didn't realise that Lisa Wilkinson was going to be doing the big interview on the project. I didn't realise that this story would spark something that other stories haven't. Mm -hmm. And I think I've thought a lot about why that is and I think that I think Brittany Higgins' determination Mm -hmm. to keep speaking, so that, that week in Parliament. I think that the government attempted different ways of sort of deflecting and minimising and and trying to sort of ultimately ride the story out without having to do much about it. And the story just kept coming. I have never, I I have written and worked in in the sort of space of gender equality and I've been talking about the treatment of women for a long time, been writing about violence against women, sexual harassment, but I've never had the number of people that have reached out to me since that Monday Mm-hmm. I think everyone is telling their stories and I think that's why there is this sort of collective anger. But also and then I think the fact that then the allegations came out about, you know, a, a Cabinet Minister being subject to historic allegations and then again the treatment of that story and it, it seeming like the government thought it could ride that out and it hasn't because people are not backing down. Mm-hmm. Women in particular are not willing to back down. It was a story that was quite unique from the start being that it was an article of that gravity published in a News Corp newspaper where it was interesting to see the first shots fired really by a News Corp newspaper, which I think heralded the fact that this story was going to change a lot in how the tone of things like this was going to be reported. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think the strength probably of of it being Samantha Maiden and being news.com.au meant that, I mean, 
Samantha has a is, is pretty well regarded as being a tenacious journalist. Mm-hmm. She doesn't. I wouldn't have thought she lies down very easily. Yeah. And I think news.com.au, yes, it is a News Corp owned publication, but it's also very widely read. Mm-hmm. And I think the combination of of the story being published there, and then Brittany Higgins actually speaking on camera. To, to Lisa Wilkinson on the project that night, I think it got more mainstream media attention. And it's certainly, I mean, you can imagine if that it had been in The Guardian, for example, yeah. potentially, you know, I think the government would have felt that it had a, it was going to be better able to sort of write this off as, yeah. as the grumblings of someone unhappy. I actually also think, though, the fact that it was such a tangible seems like a silly word, but it was, this was, a, we had a person in front of us mm. who, you know, just a few weeks before she was doing this interview was still working for yeah. senior ministers inside the, yeah. the government. And she was explaining what had happened to her. And it wasn't, you know, to contrast it with the situation we've got with the cabinet minister, this is in recent history. And there's yeah. a whole lot of people that were involved in yeah. a way that cannot be denied because of the workplace yeah. in which it happened. Yeah, absolutely. And also almost universal, unlike so many situations like this, the victim blaming came from the top, as Brittany Higgins pointed out herself. But she was the most believed victim amongst the people of all time, if you if you know if you know what I'm saying. I don't think there was any commentators, there was no you know, even the commentary on social media was it's a pretty sad state of affairs when everyone, even big supporters of the government, can acknowledge that this probably happened. Yeah, and I think that I have I have actually thought about that a lot because there's been a lot of women that have come forward mm. over the years and have told horrific stories. And while there's always, I, I think and hope, there's been a proportion of the population that have definitely believed them, we know that it is almost inevitable that when we're talking about a an allegation of rape or sexual violence that it's almost, almost the first response for a lot of people is, oh, I just don't believe that could happen. Yeah. I mean, you know, I just I know so many good men, they don't do this stuff. Mm. And I think for whatever reason... Well, and I, I do think it is connected to it happening in that workplace because Parliament House has got the sort of security that it does. You can't get into that building without being signed in. There's yeah. video footage of people. I think that the government obviously, and, I, you know, the, the technicalities of this came out, but there was CCTV footage that had, you know, these two people together arriving and leaving. It was very clear that someone was unwell. Mm. And so I think that there was just not the scope to deny mm that these circumstances happened or that these circumstances were different to how someone perceived it in the moment. And I think a lot of it too was compounded by the way that the government responded to it. I mean, how it all came out when the story broke that the office of the defence minister took a bunch of steps to make sure this wasn't going to get out. They made sure that if you believe what he says that the Prime Minister was not informed, the Home Affairs Minister was not informed, the Attorney General was not informed. So that, I think, compounds it to the point where it just became completely and utterly unpalatable mm. from people for all, from all, all walks of life. Yes, and I think my theory on why this particular case and, and, and this particular story has evoked the response it is is because the federal government's response is emblematic, I think, of the response that so many women have faced or have feared that they would face if they ever reported sexual assault or sexual violence, that the priority would be how do we manage this PR crisis, not here's a human being in front of us who's telling us that she's been violated. How do we handle her as a human being? We have 
you know, these situations where people try to talk for her what Brittany would yeah. want and and really instead of actually just accepting the humanity in front of you and accepting what this person is saying, the federal government has done what a lot of leaders and employers in different industries have done to women for a long time and that is to sort of question them, to fail to support them, to fail to adequately recognise what's happened for them. How do you, as someone who, uh, you know, writes a lot about this stuff and, you know, has been involved in, you know, gender equality and uh, advocacy for all these kind of things we're speaking about now, when you see such high-powered females behaving the way we've seen, you know, some of the people that Brittany Higgins was depending on? Mm. So I think there's a couple of things here. I think that it's probably very likely that, the Defence Minister, Linda Reynolds, may not return to her position. And I do think that from what we know about some of her behaviour, I think absolutely it is is questionable whether or not she is a fit and proper person to be in Cabinet. But I also think that it would be very ironic if the only person that loses a senior role in this government is a woman. <laughs> We're because, seeing a lot of Mackenzie in this, aren't well, we? Well, <laughs> I know. But so this is this is my issue, is that I think that when you have got such a small representation of women in, in a leadership group or in, in any team, they are a product of that culture. And so the question that I – one of the things that I've said is, okay, so if, if what – we're being told is true. If the Defence Minister, Linda Reynolds, upon discovering that there was this allegation of rape, that federal police were involved, that this had happened in her office, if she didn't tell the Prime Minister, there are two reasons why you wouldn't tell. Because you know that the Prime Minister would not want to hear that sort of information, they would want you to manage it. That culture is on the Prime Minister, as far as I'm concerned. I can't actually think what the other reason I was going to say, that you wouldn't have told. But I think you've got to look at these women in power as being products of their culture. Yep. I mean, yeah. so Julie Bishop, the former foreign minister, was on 7.30 earlier this week and it was a, I thought she was pretty forthright in her views and I tweeted a few things that she had said and I had a lot of people comment, you know, it's easy for her to say that now because she's out of government. When she was in Cabinet, she didn't do anything. And the reality is, again, I think we have to look at this is why when you've only got such a small representation of yep. women it's a problem because she could not have realistically fought for any of these issues. She couldn't have, even if she genuinely felt it. And she was criticised at the time for sort of distancing herself from the label of feminist and not wanting to say all these sorts of things. But again, that's a product of the party and a product of the culture. Because a lot of the hardline commentary is kind of drawing parallels to the elite wives of Handmaid's Tale and that kind of stuff. You think that's not very fair in the climate, in the kind of treading water environment of this small minority of females in the in the Liberal Party yeah, and, I and do- National Party? Yeah, and but I think I would be careful here and say that I actually do think that every individual in whatever sphere they're in has got a responsibility to stand yeah. up for, for what's right. Yeah. And so I don't I, I genuinely do not excuse for one minute any leader, whether they're a male or a female, having someone in their employment, in their staff come to them and, and tell them this has happened and not responding with with compassion. That's unforgivable. But I think in a political sense, when you look at the decisions that are being made the concern I have is that potentially the decision that Linda Reynolds made, if that was indeed the case, to not tell the Prime Minister, it was because she knew that the Prime Minister would not want this information. Yeah, and she probably didn't want to appear that she didn't have all of her ducks in a row either, inside of her own office, and she didn't probably didn't want to appear to be inept, really. Yeah, which and I think that is troubling because I think there's plenty of ineptitude on display in uh, yeah. Canberra on, yeah. on any given day. Yeah. 
But on this issue, I think it is, and again, the decisions and the and the public remarks that we've had from the Prime Minister and the Attorney-General in, in relation to the historic rape allegations, it's been a really similar picture in that we've been asked to believe these stories that, oh, I didn't read that document. Yeah. Now, the only reason that you would <laughs> you not read... do anything down there? What are you, what what? Are you not reading? Like, well, exactly. Yeah. And this is the question. Like, if you were... And I've spoken at a few corporate events recently because it is International Women's Day... And there's not a business leader I've spoken to. If you, whatever corporation you work in, whatever industry you work in, if a crime was committed in your workplace mm. and you're the CEO, yeah. you're on top of that. Yeah. Because no one's going to say you're responsible for the robbery that occurred or the assault that occurred, but you are going to want to be on top of all of the details about how that happened, how it was managed, how it can be managed, mm. how do we make it okay. Yeah. So in all of these instances, when we have got the Prime Minister and senior members of government claiming total ignorance... If your job is not to be on top of, at the very minimum level, what's happening in the workplace that you're in charge of, what are you doing? Yeah. It's kind of like how uh, the chairman at Rio Tinto, he's resigned over what happened in the Pilbara, over the destruction of Aboriginal artefacts, and he was in a boardroom in Switzerland when it happened. Maybe we need to pay the Prime Minister $33 million. He might retire too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We could crowdfund maybe $33 million and he might and offer him <laughs> to retire. $33 million gardening leave for a resignation. I mean, you're right. It, and, and the fact that it happened, likely this incident took place, allegedly it took place 50 metres from his desk, you know, 150 metres at the most in, in, in the Cabinet. So that would – I mean, if that kind of thing happened in Mitre 10 – there would be heads rolling, you know what I mean? If, if that yeah. kind of thing happened yeah. on a construction site, if that kind of thing happened in a bar, anywhere. Well, and also, I mean, like let's think about recent examples of how other leaders have been treated. Now, the Australia Post CEO mm-hmm. was kicked out very quickly for giving a gift that was deemed to, to look inappropriate, which did yeah. look inappropriate until you saw the um, bonuses that the NBN executives took home and suddenly yeah. the watches looked like literally short change. Yeah. But I think that... There is the Prime Minister has applied a much higher standard to different people around him than he has to himself yeah. in, in the management of these issues because I just do not believe for two minutes that a Prime Minister would not be interested in knowing every detail about an alleged crime that occurred in his building but also an alleged crime that may have been committed by one of his Cabinet Ministers that was not just a one-line anonymous tweet or troll on Facebook putting it out there but was a you know what I'm told is it's a 30 page dossier of diary entries and statements and yes it's not admissible in a criminal law case um, courtroom but that's not the only standard that we have for ministers you know we want more than just don't be convicted of a crime yeah and for the prime minister to have no interest in reading that and to be open about saying he didn't read it Mm. is pretty extraordinary I think it's also extraordinary, like this is the first time in in my memory that I've ever got of someone being pushed into a corner by controversy and, and they've just been able to tap out and go away for two weeks. Yeah, and I think that disconnect between what, you know, senior politicians yeah. are entitled to and what, you know, everyday ordinary Australians are entitled to. There aren't very many Australians that have access to paid mental health leave, no, despite no. the fact that paid mental health leave would be very important for lots of people. Yeah. And I think, you know, the other thing is that, you know, we know that as it stands, there's only about the conviction rate for sexual assault in Australia yeah. is around 
1.5%. So that means like 98.5% of perpetrators are not ever held to account. And I think that sort of also explains this groundswell of of anger Mm. and fury among women because... There's, it just seems, I think, the combination of having Brittany Higgins in the news and, and with the horrific details of what she suffered, not just in the actual assault itself but in the weeks and years afterwards, and then this situation with a Cabinet Minister who, who genuinely thinks that him saying the words, I didn't do it, is enough for the whole matter to be closed. And I think the government misjudged potentially how willing Australian women in particular were going to be to let that go. Start to finish, everything is a tragedy uh, in this whole thing, particularly this fact that Brittany Higgins, whatever she does moving forward, she'll be, you know, this has kind of defined her. And she didn't set out to get a job in Parliament House to one day become a anti-sexual assault advocate, which is what, she, unfortunately, she's not going to be able to avoid that. Mm. You didn't set out to, to do what you do right now. And, and, and you wrote a book about this, Breaking Badly, I guess, indirectly led you to where you are now. Can you can you explain to us how your course changed from, you know, law? Yes. Yes, I can. Yeah, so I studied business and law mm-hmm. at university in Brisbane and I had actually all through school I'd wanted to be a journalist but towards the end I'd started to think about law. I thought that seemed like a good idea. I did a communications business degree which was sort of in my head a little bit of a nod to the journalism. But once I started law, I actually really loved studying it mm-hmm. and then law is one of those sorts of programs where it's quite structured and you get to a certain point and everyone starts applying for these clerkship positions at big law firms and it's not an easy process in that it's quite competitive but it's an easy process in that if you're at this level if you're at this year in your studies you can start applying to these firms on this date and then you'll have offers by this date and so I fell into the trap of thinking oh well if that's what everyone's doing I'll do that and I ended up getting a couple of clerkships at at big firms, which I did, and then I got offered a graduate position with with one of them that I had worked for casually um, for my last year of uni. And I had actually really enjoyed my casual job, but I was moving to Sydney for the big graduate position. And I actually didn't really want to be a commercial lawyer. I didn't in my heart of hearts, you know, and I had that conversation with a lot of people, but I also knew that it was a good job and Mm. that it was why would I turn that down? Because particularly in those years when you're leaving Uni, I had lots of friends who finding the first job was really tricky because yeah. it's not so easy unless you've done a vocation yeah. course. And I just thought, sort of thought, well, I'd be wild to turn this down. So, yeah. I, so I took it and I started. And the other sort of relevant backstory is that when I was 19, so I was, I was in my second year of uni, I was diagnosed with two health conditions. So one of them was endometriosis and the other one was Crohn's disease. Neither of them are pleasant mm. at all. I had I had to have a number of I had three operations for endometriosis within a few weeks of being diagnosed with it, and I found that very confronting because I hated having operations. It was, it, and also at nineteen, it just wasn't what I thought I wanted to be doing, and lots of my friends weren't doing it, so I found it quite isolating, I guess. And then I had was diagnosed with Crohn's disease again, very unpleasant, required all sorts of treatments. Also, hadn't heard much about these like illnesses. No one really does. Especially that age. No, and and actually it is funny because so this was – I finished high school in 1999 and yeah. so I didn't even have a mobile phone until my first year of uni. Certainly smartphones were another mm. – like a solid decade on later. The mm. internet, you know, was around but it wasn't like it is now. So if, if issues like anxiety but also endometriosis 
I had never heard about it. Mm. I'd literally never heard about it. Now, fortunately, that is quite different now. I think a lot of mm. young women, there's lots more of information out there. And But I didn't know what either of these two things were and neither were very pleasant. Mm. And I sort of just set up this coping mechanism, which was I would keep my illnesses in a box on one corner and then the rest of my life was in a different box and I would sort of maintain that division. And while I was at uni, I actually was able to do that because at uni you've got far more flexibility you know it's not like a nine to five job where you're there the whole time and so I was able to kind of manage my illness and my study and do well enough to get these clerkships but when I moved down to Sydney and started working full-time I I got really sick so I was really unwell I was really thin I was I, I just felt horrendous but I was mortified that I felt horrendous and I was really determined that I would just pretend that I didn't feel terrible and really I did that for about 18 months before I fell apart and I literally fell apart. Mm-hmm. I fell over one night in my office with this sort of vertigo spell. It felt a bit like there'd been an earthquake but no one else had felt it. And that was the start of four months of being unable really to function properly. I had mm-hmm. this horrendous vertigo. I, could, I didn't have – I wasn't steady on my feet. I had headaches. I felt nauseous all the time. I just felt – Dreadful, And I ended up having to move back home to my parents in Lismore. So I, at that stage I was living with my boyfriend. We shared like a tiny, tiny apartment that was about 25 square metres. And he couldn't look after me full time because he was studying at uni as well as, well as working. And so I moved home to my parents and spent this awful four months thinking that I would never get off the couch and that my whole life would be spent on the sofa. And I do love my parents, but mm. I did not sort of have the sofa in mind for like my full future (laughs) and saw lots of doctors, saw lots of alternative health practitioners, saw everyone. No one could tell us what was happening until finally a physician who was over 70 said to me, you know, what you're experiencing is real. It's not in your head, which is what I had started to imagine because we were seeing all these doctors. I was seeing neurologists and ear, nose and throat people and GPs, no one could tell me what couple, was wrong. A couple Lismore witch doctors too. I'm oh, a bit yeah, of- 100%. <laughs> oh, look, we did the full spectrum. There yeah, was yeah. the diets that we tried. Like I, yeah. it was like anything. I tried anything and mm. nothing helped. And then finally this gorgeous specialist said to me, who was a classic old school physician, which yeah. is a doctor that kind of looks at the whole body and, and he just said, look, Georgie, what you're experiencing is real, but I think it's actually stress that's causing this and I think we probably need to have a discussion about you going on medication for anxiety. I think you should see a psychiatrist and I think you should be admitted into psychiatric care. Now, the fact that when he said those words, my immediate response was relief was a pretty solid indication to me that Mm. what he said was exactly right because Mm. I just needed help. I was in such a bad place. You know, I I wasn't well when this four months kicked off and then I spent four months just getting worse and worse and worse because I was terrified of what was going on and I did have untreated anxiety, rampant Mm. anxiety. And so I did. I went to a psychiatric hospital, I started medication and I sort of embarked on a really intensive therapy session for a Mm. couple of weeks which was... The best thing that could have ever happened to me at that point. So what I experienced was awful and I would not recommend it to anyone. But for me, crashing into rock bottom gave me perspective about my options Mm -hmm. that I don't think anything else could. And so that was it was when I was there that I realised that I didn't actually want to be a commercial lawyer. Mm -hmm. And I didn't have a nervous breakdown just because I worked in corporate law, but 
corporate law working really, really long hours in a competitive environment, it certainly probably accelerated my demise. Yeah. And I didn't even enjoy it. It wasn't. I was. It wasn't even my dream. I don't even know whose dream it was. But on paper, it yeah. looked good. Mm. And I was concerned with doing good things. I like being a good person. Well, I like ticks. Also, being closeted with you know these these illnesses that you'd kind of been diagnosed with, leading into all of that. Yeah, and actually, this was probably one of the kind of light bulb. I had a lot of light bulb moments when I was in um, rehab, but I think that. I had really internalised this message that because I had illness, I was really deficient. Mm -hmm. And so having Crohn's was sort of almost like a character flaw. And same with endometriosis. And I was kind of overcompensating for that in thinking, well, if I do well enough, no one, it won't matter. Mm -hmm. And then what I actually realised when I was in rehab and I actually sort of stepped back and you start talking to people about the stuff around you and they ask questions and you think, oh, my gosh, maybe I'm actually more resilient because I have these illnesses and still manage to, to do these things, not less yeah. resilient because it is actually something that I cope with and I manage. I mean, obviously I didn't do a very good job of it when I landed in rehab, but I certainly had over those years and it just it changed my perspective. And I and I still now, like my body is just hilariously broken. Mm. If I have I have new health issues all the time. Yeah. My brother and sister are like the healthiest, most straightforward people, yeah. never have to see a specialist. But I, I also in rehab, I just came to grips with the fact that I am the way that I am in mm-hmm. good and bad ways. And you know, it's the same a bit with anxiety. Obviously, I and I still have stayed on medication. And for me, that makes life a lot easier than not being on medication. And I did have therapy for a long time. And I do now, if something's going wrong or I'm not feeling great, I will always go back and see someone. I got the oil checked. Yep. Yeah. And, you know, I realised that um, I didn't realise that anxiety was a thing. Yeah. And I didn't realise that it was a thing that was ruining my life. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, from the illnesses you've mentioned here that you've been diagnosed with, all three kind of have a stigma around them too, at least the Crohn's and the endometriosis. There's a lot of hush around them. And then, of course, into mental illness, which is uh, in a similar, as the title of your book says, that makes for breaking badly when it all kind of ends up in a pressure cooker environment. Yes, and... I mean, that was really what hit me when I got to rehab was that suddenly I realised, you know, there was a part of me that was like, how have I landed in a psychiatric hospital? I'm such a nerd. I do all the right things. I haven't ever abused, you know, illegal substances. How am I getting admitted to rehab? But the more I actually sat and spoke with professionals and really started looking at it differently, I was like, I actually am surprised it took me that long to have a nervous breakdown. You know, yeah. I really what, the the pressure that I was putting on myself, on top of what I was physically living with in terms of illness and mental illness, it was a pretty toxic combination. And so, I think it's inevitable that I landed where I did. And I think, I guess, one of the things. So, this book was published in May two thousand and nineteen, and I am still struck by. I get the most incredible messages from people all the time. When I was having that horrendous time, I honestly thought, not in an egomaniacal way, but I honestly thought I was the only person that had broken like this and that was so, you know, and I I also am incredibly privileged, which I've always known. I was, you know, my parents were very comfortable. They gave us an amazing opportunity. I knew how lucky I was and I thought it wasn't really fair for me to break when Mm -hmm. there are children out there or teenagers or young adults out there who've had actual trauma in their life. But again, being aware of privilege is a, is a good thing, but it's very corrosive if you're using it to beat yourself up yeah. with when you're not actually looking at what's in front of you. And I get so many messages from people who are living 
that time that I did or have lived that time. And that is is still invisible. And it's invisible for a good reason because when you're in the middle of falling apart, you do not want to publicise it to people. You can barely publicise it to yourself. When nothing on paper suggests that you should be. Yeah. Well, after the book was published, did how many people got in contact with you with a story that was pretty similar? I mean, is this a problem that law firms have? Uh, it's not It's not just law firms, but I will say I have spoken at quite a few law firms about lots of different parts of this, and I will never forget one breakfast I spoke at, which was a women's – it was a – women's lawyer networking group and it was at a different person's office and that meant so it wasn't just the firm there it was Mm. people who'd come from different places and I say this because I think people felt a bit safer than they felt than if it was in their workplace and they were sitting next to their colleagues but I was giving a speech and at one point there were about 12 people in the room of maybe 60 who were just had tears streaming down their face and, and that reaction is not that uncommon, mm. but it just something about it struck me as just so sad when I looked at that because I just thought, I know my story is mm. so universal. And I guess the other thing that is true about my book is that it does talk about living with illness. Mm. And I did have, I had underestimated how many people with Crohn's disease would actually find it quite useful just because there isn't that much ever written about Crohn's mm. because it's so vile. But then there's also this sort of professional angst of, of sort of navigating what I did, which was when I left law and then because after rehab I decided I just didn't need to pretend anymore that mm. law was what I wanted and I kind of opened up the space and ended up getting a career in journalism, which I'm very grateful for and it still sort of blows my mind that that happened. But I think a lot of people can relate to the feeling that I sort of described of feeling like you're doing all the right things and what you have to do but being miserable and scared and unhappy all the time but not really knowing what to do with it. And so it's hard for me to say how many people have got in touch after the book, but I would say probably now I get at least one or two messages on social media every week, but there have been times where it would be 30 or or 25. And, again, it's not necessarily people that are living the exact same toxic situation that I was, but it is people that are struggling with either anxiety or perfectionism or feeling like this incredible pressure to meet other people's standards um, or it's living with chronic illness or it's doing a job that you hate and sort of knowing that you've got something inside you that you want to be doing but not quite knowing how to get there. So I think there's a few different touch points that people relate to. I don't necessarily think everyone who reads it is exactly like I was. Would you say gender inequality, I mean, that's that's something you write a lot about now, but would that be a touch point in your story as well that that might resonate with... You know, you, you said before that event where, you know, you, you had this emotional response from such an audience it was a woman's uh, networking event. Was that a factor in all of this too? Um, so I think it's, it's interesting actually because I went to an all-girls school, a boarding school in Brisbane, and I have very low-key equal parents. So my parents both always worked. Dad had afternoons off. He did school sport. He cooked dinner. It was a very equal family, particularly by 1980 standards. And then I went to this private school where, you know, we were I just I just genuinely the thought of <laughs> I just genuinely thought that gender inequality was a thing of the past. Yeah. And then when I got to uni and it's, you know, in lecture theaters it was more if anything it was slightly more girls than boys in law. And then I just genuinely so gender absolutely was not on my radar right. until after my breakdown and I actually became a journalist, a business journalist, and that was when I started interrogating 
the sort of figures and I was like, oh, my goodness, this is absolutely horrendous. But in the book I do talk about the fact that the journey, I suppose, that I went on when I started working as a journalist and started thinking about these issues but then also when my husband and I had our first child and then you suddenly thrust into this other world where, you know, all of a sudden people think that, you know, they'd think he was a hero for keeping our child alive for an hour and a half on a Sunday morning, whereas, you know, mothers can't do anything right. We were both quite shocked, I think, by the projections of other people on us. Like we were equally incompetent Mm. at nurturing a newborn baby. We were learning as we went. (laughs) But it's called babysitting when dad's left at home alone. (laughs) Well, that's the thing. Not not in our house it's not. But, but you know, and I guess that – and I do write in the book, I guess, Mm. the sort of evolution of how I became to be as passionate – as I am about these issues. And it, and it wasn't because I was born on this sort of mission to to write and talk about women's rights all the time, but it's because mm. it sort of happened in an organic way. But also I am just so convinced that Australia can create a better story yeah. for women and I think that I've been convinced of that for a very long time. I gave a speech, I remember it so clearly, about seven years ago where I called for a new story for Australian women and I still think about the quotes that I use because all of the different scenarios are still so true. We've got so few women in different roles. We look at, look at the way that women in public life are treated. And I just know it can be better. Yeah, this last week hasn't really been good uh, in terms of those uh, points. In fact, it does, it does at times feel like a backward slide. Yes and no. So it, it, it absolutely feels like things are horrendous mm-hmm. for women in this country. But what I would say is that things aren't actually more horrendous right now than they were three weeks ago or six weeks ago or three months ago. But there are more people, I think, that are opening their eyes to the true horror of it for the first time. And so for a lot of people it might feel like this is horrendous, I cannot believe this is happening, whereas for women it feels like finally we're getting enough people listening. The lid's been torn open, yeah. Yeah, and to see – and, I mean, again, so this would be something I did as I did the drum on ABC last Wednesday night – And I've never had, I think I probably had eight emails from middle-aged men who I've never met before who wrote and said, I watched tonight or I've been reading the news, I just cannot believe how much I thought this was not a problem and, you know, messages to that effect. And that fills me with hope, Mm. not because I think men are the solution to this problem. I I think they're certainly part of the solution to this problem. But I think to me that really indicates that the conversation is shifting in a way that it's not just women getting in touch with me after the drum to say, you know, I've been hurt too, which is what you always get, which is heartbreaking. It's a man saying, I had no idea people got hurt like this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, tell us what's happening in the immediate future that you you might be directly involved in. Yes, well, so this is one of the other things that's filling me with hope because Mm. last weekend um, a woman, well, two weekends ago now, but it was it was – in the aftermath of the historic allegations coming forward about mm. you know, a, a cabinet minister allegedly having raped a 16-year-old girl, and we didn't know at this point who the cabinet minister was. It wasn't publicly known. But a woman, um, Janine Hendry, who's 58, has never organised a protest, sent out a tweet and said, what if when Parliament resumes we get 4,000 women to form a circle around Parliament House as a show of solidarity that we're here, we exist and we matter? And... She got a pretty terrific response from Twitter, enough that on the Sunday she set up a Facebook page. And 
within 24 hours it had about 9,500 followers. I think it's now it's now close to 30,000 and it has turned into not just a march or a protest in Canberra but there is a, a big rally being organised in Canberra for next Monday, the 15th of March at 12pm when Parliament sits. But there are also satellite events planned in capital cities and regional towns all around the country and it is genuinely an organic uprising of, mm-hmm. of women. The, the, the people in this group, you know, there are definitely established feminists like myself and lots and lots of um, women who've been working in this space for a long time are involved. But if you look at the social media, there are lots of people who are protesting for the very first time. First timers. And it's because they've just suddenly, they've had enough. Yeah. You know, and I mean, that is one of the, the, so the event is called March for Justice. And the other hashtag that's going with it is enough is enough because that is just how we feel, enough. And when, you know, because I guess the other thing is and about this being related to Parliament House in Canberra, so sexual harassment and sexual assault are not just problems in Canberra. But if we can't keep women safe in Parliament House, in the building where our power sits, where laws are made... AK-47s, men carrying AK-47s walking around the halls... Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Probably not AKs, but something to tell that effect. M- M16. <laughs> yeah. But um, if we can't keep people safe in that building, mm. what hope is there for women in other yeah. workplaces? And so that's yeah. why we're going to Canberra, to really say that the treatment of women in Australia is unacceptable. It has been unacceptable for a long time, but we are not standing down on mm. this. It has got to start from the top down, and we have got to get it right in Canberra because if we have leadership in this country that perpetuates, whether it's deliberate or not, but perpetuates this idea that women are PR problems to be managed or that they are highly emotional, problematic individuals that are inferior to the men. And, you know, that is the subliminal messaging that we get from this government every single day. Mm. And it's time to challenge that. And I think it's also actually relevant to say there's obviously been a lot of conversation in recent weeks around the issue of sexual assault among school children yeah. you know the yeah. the sydney girl who started that petition has created an extraordinary response in that in that we are there are schools and communities of parents and families who are talking about these issues and i see that these things are very closely connected because in my view the issue of rape is actually not about consent rape is not sex, rape is an act of violence, Mm -hmm. of violating another person's body. And that's not there's not a blurred line there. So the idea I think I absolutely support education around respectful relationships and I think conversations around consent are very important. But I also think we've got to be really realistic about how gender inequality creates a culture in which men believe that they are entitled to violate another person's body as their sort of right. And my view is that we cannot have the leadership we've got in Canberra right now giving the message that it is giving about how little it values women and expect teenage boys to be treating women with the respect they deserve. Does this take us down a whole other path of, you know, rap video clips and and stuff like that? I know what you're saying. What you're saying is quite, I mean, we've seen it from the start with the Morrison government with, you know, when Julia Banks moved to the crossbench and then there was... You know, even at that point, I was going to mention earlier, Senator Reynolds was, you know, joining this kind of push against the Prime Minister and since Mm. you don't see that same kind of sentiment in the last few weeks. But there is, uh, you know, there's a lot lot at play in terms of media, in terms of, dare I say, video games. 
I know that's the uh, that's the one that gets a lot of criticism from from the kids. You know, is it an issue of objectifying as well? I think objectifying women is definitely an issue, mm. but I also think that the objectification of women is much easier to do in a way that's harmful when the culture supports men as dominant and men as superior. And and that is what our culture does support. And it's not the way that it has to be. There are other countries where there is a, a smaller gap between the genders. And, you know, contrary to what some people might think, that hasn't been the end of humanity. And it yeah. certainly hasn't been the end of men and women having positive respectful relationships in, in workplaces and in homes and behind closed doors. You know, it's it's not impossible to imagine how we increase the respect mm. of of girls and, and women in this country. But no one has ever made any inroads at closing the gap between men and women accidentally. Yeah. It only happens when you are committed and deliberate and yeah. The, you know, the alternative is if you, and this is a quote from Liz Broderick, who used to be the Federal Sex Discrimination Commissioner, if you don't actively include women, you will unintentionally exclude them. Yeah. And that is what we see played out. So it is time for intentional inclusion. Yeah. And I'm going to be marching in Canberra yeah. and I will be demanding that. And dare I say, there will be thousands and thousands of women and men marching not just in Canberra, but around the country. And I don't think that the march, I don't look at this march as the end of it. I look at the march as the beginning of it and the beginning of a new conversation about the treatment of women in this country. Yeah, so that'll be happening on Monday, the 15th. Look up March for Justice uh, to all those listeners at home. That's, um, yeah, you've got a weekend to, to get your signs ready. And uh, to the blokes out there, this... This is one for you to maybe take a few rows back on the march. You know, we don't want the like the white fellows up front on Invasion Day. We might uh, we might ask you guys to, uh, you know, women to the front. I think on this one, yeah. boys. Look, I think that's right. But I should also say, my husband is marching. He's yep. taken the day off work. He's bringing our two older girls, and I know of a lot of men who are coming. And so, mm-hmm. men are definitely very welcome. It'll be an interesting turnout and it's going to definitely change the course of the stories that we've been seeing in the news, uh, most definitely, uh, and for the better. So thank you for joining us today, Georgie Dent. What a, uh, what a, what a great yarn and uh, what a great thing you're doing. Yeah, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here in Batuta and I do hope that Batuta will be having a march of its own. Oh, we will be, down on Daru yep. Street, front and yep. centre. And if you'd like to attend a march on the 15th of March... You can go to the following places. The main one, the main one around the country is obviously happening in Canberra. And in New South Wales, there are marches in Albury and Wodonga, Armadale, Bega, Bellingen, Byron Bay, Coffs Harbour, Gosford, Aluka, Lismore, Nowra, Newcastle, Sydney, Taree and Wagga Wagga. There's a bus leaving from Wollongong in the morning to go to Canberra. So if you're in the Wollongong area and feel like getting up early, you can get on that bus and get out of Canberra. In the Northern Territory, there are marches in Alice Springs and Darwin. And in Queensland, there are marches in Brisbane, Bundaberg, Cairns, on the Sunshine Coast, Toowoomba and Townsville. In South Australia, there's just the one in Adelaide. In Tasmania, there is also just one, and that is in Hobart. And in Victoria, there are marches in Ballarat, Bendigo, Geelong, Melbourne, Rosebud, Talbot, Torquay, Wangaratta, Warrnambool and Wodonga. And over in the prosperous west of the country, there's a march in Bunbury and there's a march in Perth. So if you're in any of those locations, just 
trundle on down after lunch go on the website and take a look at where the marches are but they all start around about noon so get on down there